Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. To foster care and unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. Today we have a couple special guests with us here to tell their story. Um, this one was a really interesting one when I found them, and I said, you know, I'm going to get these guys in here to talk to you guys, tell their story because they've got a lot of aspects that I think line up with people in our in our niche. That people who who have experienced similar things, although I don't think I know anybody who's experienced all of them at once. So. Today we have Roman and Lindsay Prokopchuk. Did I get it right? Yep, that was, that was great. Sweet. <laughs> How are you guys doing today? Good. How are you? We are doing well, doing well. The kids are quiet and... and uh, well, for the moment they are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're, we're not going to promise they'll stay that way. But, you know, kids are quiet, happy, healthy, and fed. And so we have some time to sit down and have a conversation with some interesting folks. So... I know Roman and Lindsay are, you guys are foster parents, you've had a lot of kids come into your house, you've had some, some infertility issues you've dealt with, um, why, why don't you tell us kind of kind of how you how you got to the point you're at? Um, I'll, I'll start because otherwise Roman will tell you that it was all my idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we, we did, we went through IVF, um, I think going on five years now, and halfway through that um because we've been unsuccessful decided that i decided that we should explore foster care um and roman wasn't really interested in it didn't know if we could love another person's child um as our own and just didn't know if we were really up for it and i convinced him and said well let's just try it if it doesn't work out um you know we'll figure something else out and make a very long story short um two and a half years later we've been licensed um we've had this little guy is our 21st child that we've had um still continuing with ivf so this will i think our upcoming round will be our sixth round um of ivf five miscarriages in the last four years um and we stopped counting after six figures out of pocket. <laughs> so that's how we got involved in foster care. Wow, that's that's quite a ride. Um, for, for us people out here that don't really know, what does IVF entail? A lot of everything. <laughs> um, a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of patience. So... Uh, the short version of it, um, you take a lot of medication to make your body do unnatural things. Um, in my case, where you typically grow one egg a month, um, after three weeks of medication, 
my body produced 27 eggs. I had a surgical procedure to have those removed. Um, the male does a sperm sample and then we did what was called IVF with ICSI. Um, so in vitro fertilization with ICSI is um, intracellular something. Um, where they, <laughs> they take the best sperm and inject it into the best egg. Um, and then they let it kind of hang out there for a while. And then you do, so ours um, were all genetic tested, spent a little over $10,000 genetic testing everything. Um, and then they went into cryo and then you wait, you take more medicine, everything is injected um, either into your stomach or your backside. And then you do an embryo transfer, which um, that embryo is transferred back into you with a catheter. And then you hope that it works, hope that it, it develops and grows. As a, as a, a guy and a, and a dad, I, I can look back and say, we have the easy side of this, I think. There's a lot of money and time and heartache that goes in around all that. Um, you mentioned the five miscarriages in four years. And as a guy... My level of experience there is going to be a little bit lower, obviously. My level of understanding is going to be a little bit lower. But I know that I've had lots of friends who've, who've experienced that, who've been through that. And both for them and their wives, it's been a really hard experience. How, how did you guys get through? I mean, five and four years is pretty pretty traumatic, I would assume. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll say from the male perspective, I mean, Lindsay had to, you know, deal the brunt of it, obviously, like the physical toll of it. And um, like, for me, obviously, it was emotionally impactful. But then also figuring out how to be there for her and show that I'm there for her. Because uh, me personally, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of men out there in terms of showing their feelings. It's not as expressive so i try to be there as best as possible but it d doesn't necessarily seem like i am or if i'm going through it maybe i'm you know hiding it or covering it up a little bit better in terms of the pain and the emotional toll it has but each one was just as hard and it's one of those things where like you're on number five and you have doubts in your mind you know should you you know try a sixth time because there was these five results that you know didn't go the way you wanted to so you know trying to be there as best as possible each time, you know, her body went through a hormonal toll in terms of, you know, all the medicine she has to take to trick her body that, you know, she's pregnant in order to have the embryo basically stick. And then, you know, giving her, you know, two, three inch needles in her back every day for like a week or two. And it, I mean, it's just a lot on her and, and very draining, but that's kind of my perspective. She can, you know, say hers. It's similar. I mean, I would get frustrated with him because he, you know, takes on that male role of being supportive um and I would break down and just scream at him and say why aren't you crying why aren't you upset about this um and he was he he just took on the the strong the strong face um for it but it was tough and it's you know stress affects your body and plays a big part into whether or not it works and like he said after the first and second and third time you start to go into it with doubts and you can't, but it's really hard not to, um, you know, and then you look at the scars on your, your back, you look at the bank account that wasn't what it was before. And, um, you, you try and go into it with as much positivity, but it's, it's hard. It, it really took a toll on us. 
Well, I, I can really identify with what you're saying, Roman, because, you know, a few years back, anybody who knows our story knows that we lost our oldest daughter. And that was that exact same dynamic was something I think that me and Amanda went through. You know, I, my job was to, to be the, the big, tall, strong guy for everybody to lean on and in my mind. And so to her, that looked a lot like you don't have any emotion around this. And so that, that caused some, that caused some disconnect for us in that place. And, and we worked through it eventually. Um, but what, you know, what really helped you guys work through that disconnect? Because as you're going through something like that, I mean, what you need is, is your, your partner to lean on. So that can cause some, some struggles in between you. And I mean, the marriage is, is ultimately right. The most important part first and foremost. So how did you guys work through that so that you could keep the marriage strong, even in those tough places? I think our faith probably helped more than anything, um, which is really easy to doubt um, in, in times like that, you know, because sometimes you just want to take your Bible and throw it across the room and say, well, I've been praying that it'll work and, you know, I'm a good person. So why, why is God letting this happen? Um, and you want to rip out every page and set it on fire, but you just continue to have faith. So, I mean, we definitely prayed a lot. Yeah, that, that's a real powerful thing in a lot of, in a lot of marriages. And for any listeners who can pick it up, if you hear a little bitty squeaky noise, me and Amanda are sitting here watching Lindsay rocking this super cute little baby here. So if this if the squeaky noise bothers you, I'm sorry, but we like listening to babies coo. That's one of the one of the better parts of, of our life, I think. Roman, um, Lindsay said something a few minutes ago that I wanted to go back to when you guys first considered this. And you she said that you said something that, that I hear so often. I don't know if I could love another man's child. And in my family, we come from like, we were a big family in the, in the time, you know, we, we had four siblings, but there was always kids around. A couple of my good friends today were, were young kids that my dad mentored and, and they just have always been around. And, and when he passed away a few years ago, they were at his funeral, you know, those were the connections we made. So for us, it was kind of just natural. It's what I grew up with. But for a lot of guys, I could never love another child is a real issue in their mind. You know, what what do you think about that now? What do you say when you talk about foster care with somebody today, with a dad today, who says that to you? What's What's been your your path along that, that journey? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's more so like not being able to love or show the child like a biological child, I guess. In my opinion, obviously, we haven't had biological kids yet, but just like situations they're coming from different scenarios. And I think in general, being a foster parent, it was one of those things where it's like scary, it's out of the norm and anything in life fits something new, like your your mind is telling you to be in its safe zone, you know, in a comfort level in terms of self-preservation and, you know, this is going to take up all your time, this, you know, what about your, you know, business or company or hobbies or this or that or the other. And I think regardless what you try to undertake, regardless if it's being a foster parent or a new endeavor, there's always going to be time if you make time. So, I mean, right now we have a really good schedule. I mean, the most we've had at once is five children, usually uh, younger children around three, four, five. So five kids that age is a lot, but I think structure and things like that really helps them because they're coming from a situation where they don't know when their next meal is, or they don't know when bedtime is, or if they have a bed. But it's one of those things, it's like, you can't knock it, I guess, or deny it unless you actually make an attempt and just try to go with, into it all in. 
obviously like we've had 21 children we, we are kind of in new jersey designated foster to adopt so if a case moves to termination of parental rights and the child is with us we would be the first ones that the state would come to in order to you know have a a permanent home and adopt a child so it's one of those things where it's like yes there there's issues with the system there are frustrations and you're going to have pain in terms of maybe thinking you're going to adopt a child and the child gets reunified but I think it's all worth it when you start doing it because you help so many kids. And in my perspective, majority of the children did not have a father, did not know who their father is or a father figure. So me stepping in as, you know, a positive male role model, regardless if they call me dad, you know, Roman, uncle, whatever. I mean, obviously, we don't force the kids to call us anything, but whatever they're comfortable with. I think that, in in my opinion, hopefully makes a positive impact on them and they see what a you know, a family structure is and what a, you know, a man is supposed to be. And maybe that can lead them to a path of, uh, you know, being there for their kids in the future or, you know, a positive direction in their life. Yeah. That name thing that, that took a little while for us to get really comfortable with, I think, because, uh, I, well, I guess it, it all started with nieces. I, I have a mm-hmm. sister who has a lot of daughters um, I forget now what she had six daughters. I think it's um, six daughters, two boys, three boys. I don't know. It's a lot. <laughs> I, I, anyway, yeah. But as they would, the the nieces would come over to our house and and have a like a a, a night where they could all come over and spend some time and and I was really trying one night to get all of my nieces to call my wife Aunt Meanie, you know Meanie from Amanda, right? And <laughs> at the end of the evening. They not one of them had picked up on Meanie. They were calling her Mina, but unbeknownst to me, she was working on it, and I am now and forever will be monkey to more kids than I can count. Unky monkey. Yeah, <laughs> love it. But you know that that's one of the things that, that we found is valuable to offer to foster kids is the names, right? Uh, it could be Dad, it could be Jason, it could be Mister Palmer, it could be Monkey, Unky Monkey. I I don't really. I answer to most things as long as there's not four letter words attached to it, you know, <laughs> not that that's right. ever happened. You can call me anything as long as it's nice. Um, I was Latoya for about two weeks and, and just kind of went with it with one of our kids. So <laughs> That's great. But yeah, I found that, that the name doesn't really matter so much as a connection does. And you know, that, that took us a while to get to that point where we were comfortable with that. Um, so now, yeah, Roman, I was looking at your, your information, and one of the things I don't think we've talked to anybody about is you're a first-generation first immigrant. I'll spit it out. Um, you're originally from the Ukraine, is that correct? Yeah, I came to the U.S. in 1990 when I was five from Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine was still under the Soviet Union, again, its independence in 1992. And uh, my family and I had to go through Vienna, Austria, then Rome, Italy, to get here. And uh, I think it was a good time because I went right into kindergarten, went into English second language, kind of got absorbed in the culture really quick. So I learned a language and probably well in a year, then lost my accent in another year. And I think it's one of those great things where kids are young enough before their brains are really programmed where they can learn as many languages as possible. And you're kind of, it, it sounds like your native tongue. Um, did you did you grow up with a standard family, pretty typical mom, dad, brothers and sisters? Yeah, so I came over with my parents, my grandparents on my mom's side, my younger brother that was a few months old at the time, 
and my aunt. So we stayed with a sponsor, which was a distant family member uh, for, you know, a few weeks. And then we kind of, everybody got thrown into basically working. My grandparents unretired. So we had a two bedroom apartment for everybody. Everybody was working. Um, and it was one of those things, I think, you know, that in general and seeing my parents and my grandparents, like the amount they put into getting on, on their feet because leaving the Soviet Union, you couldn't leave with anything. So it was basically the clothes on your back, you know, some money you can carry and, and that, you know, that's about it. So we started from zero and obviously in a two bedroom apartment and that showed me work ethic and kind of like the grind. And I think that's something that I kept in, in that kind of grittiness and understanding where I come from and like the, the government kind of suppression and the KGB and not being able to freely worship, uh, you know, your religion or worship God or, you know, kind of go against or speak against the state and disappear and go to Siberia and stuff like that. So it, you know, at a young age, it left me with, uh, you know, a sense of appreciation. You mentioned something interesting there, the KGB. I, I also saw that you had something to do with kind of the American side of that at one point in your life. That's part of what I was I was really interested in your bio because it's really expansive. Yeah, I was I was all over the place for a while. So uh, at first, when I, I went to Rutgers University for criminal justice, um, at first, I guess uh, sophomore, junior year, I thought I was going to go to the Marine Corps as an officer. So if you are in college and you would like to go to the Marine Corps, you get your bachelor's degree and you can basically have a commission as an officer, a second lieutenant. So you basically go to Quantico, Virginia, you get commissioned and then you get a command. I believe it's like 40, you know, soldiers under you. And I thought I was going to do that, but little did I know I had an ulcer caused by a bacteria called H. pylori. And then I, uh, almost died. It also was bleeding and stuff. So I couldn't do the pre-ship PFT, which is the physical fitness test to go to Quantico. And I don't know if it's a blessing or not, but it took me a different direction. And then my senior year, I interned with the secret service on the counterfeit currency squad. So I had a top secret federal clearance. I basically, you know, they took us, we shot guns as interns in college. That was fun. But like basically uh, taking in and uh, kind of putting serial numbers and, and qualifying different counterfeit currency that came into that uh, field office. Wow. What a twist for a kid who came over from the Ukraine. Yeah. And then the economy tanked and then that led me to uh, digital marketing and I was running it with that ever since. So it's like one of those things like, you know, you talked about not being able to you know, love another man's child. It's like, you don't know where life will take you, you know, tomorrow or the next year. And I think if, if you pray about it, you think about it, you give it your all, you know, you'd be surprised of, you know, what you can do or what you can feel. I'm always rem reminded of a line from a old Van Zant song that says, if you want to hear God laugh, just tell him your plans. Lindsay, how about you? Did you come from a standard family? Did you have foster care adoption, anything like that in, in your childhood or, or what was your family like? Um, it's like a storybook family. Um, mom, dad, younger brother. We didn't have a dog or a white picket fence. Um, but we grew up in a great neighborhood, great school system. Um, my mom was a stay at home mom. Um, I grew up with a house full of children because my, my father's career allowed my mom to stay at home. Um, and every single neighborhood child was at our house for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. She was taking everyone to school. They would be there from, you know, sun up to sundown. So no um, foster care adoption or anything like that in our family, but 
kind of just saw that my mom just taking everyone in and raising everyone else's kids. So clearly some of that imprinted. So what did your families think about it whenever you guys said, hey, this is something worth looking at doing? Um, I think they thought and probably still do that we're a little bit crazy. Um, they know that we get very attached. Um, so our first placement was the hardest on everyone, on us, on our families, because everyone got so attached to them. They were just the most perfect children. Um, and it's funny because we went into it thinking that we couldn't love another person's child. And we, we love all of the children that have come into our home. We have bonded with a few of them more so than um, the others. But I tell Roman sometimes like, God, if we have a biological child, can we ever love them as much as we love some of these kids? I mean, and it's, it's, it's funny how it's flipped. Um, and it sounds like a terrible thing to say, but I mean, the love that we have for some of these kids, I mean, even, even this little guy, it's crazy, but um, that's, that's kind of how, <laughs> how we grew up. How about you, Roman? What did your family think when, when you talked to him about this? Um, I don't know. I think a lot of people, the general public don't understand like what it means to be a foster parent. And I think a lot of people get their information from shows, from movies, from the news, which obviously often shows the system being broken or different, different things of that nature. So they weren't like hesitant about it, but they didn't really know what to think or why we were doing it or if it was crazy or not. And then like, as soon as we got our first placement, they were just like showering them with love and, you know, saying, you know, you know, God, God bless you guys. Like, I don't know if we can do that. The, the amount, like you open up your home and your heart to these kids, because, you know, when a child leaves, regardless, if you think that the case is moving into adoption, or if you know, it's just a short-term placement, you, you know, you feel a certain way. You, you have to open up to the child to really show the child love. So, I mean, it does hurt every time and more so concern for if the kids are okay, or they're going to be back in the system, things of that nature. But I mean, for the most part, it was positive, but it was like reluctant to begin with because they didn't necessarily understand what foster care or the process or what it takes to be a foster parent in New Jersey really was. Let's just pretend I have a guy named Jim. Jim, I know you listen every now and then. So here's a question just for you that I may have had a conversation with the other day. And I've had this conversation with lots of guys who say, you know, man, I don't know. We couldn't do it. We get too attached. We just couldn't do it. What do you say to Because I know you've heard that. We've all heard that a lot. If you're in the system, what do you say to those people? I mean, you do get attached and it's like, I don't know if it's kind of like you're, you're going through the grinder every time. So it's like kind of like masochism in a way because you know it's coming because if you're going to feel, you're going to get your heart hurt over and over again. But if I look back the, the two and a half years, I wouldn't change anything of it, especially the first placement we had, we had for a year. I wouldn't change. We've experienced so much in that year with those kids and try to give them as much as we could in terms of kind of uh, different experiences together, different life lessons, and just kind of pour, pour out and shower them with love and knowing like, okay, we're adults. Our hearts are going to hurt, but this is going to change their lives regardless if they stayed with us or not. And they can really see that, you know, at, at, towards the end of the case, you know, we had a good relationship with the mom. I mean, there were certain things that got thrown into it in terms of kind of division and kind of messing that relationship up in a way. But, you know, we we understood that they were going back and and still it hurt because we knew it was coming at some point. But we 
we understood that we wanted to be the best resource for the children and the mom so she wouldn't end up losing them again. So they were all good and safe. And the year that they spent with us, we'll remember and cherish forever. But it's one of those things that will help them and then obviously help you know, the, the biological parents getting them back as well, because we try to kind of bridge the gap for as many cases as possible and be basically a resource for the biological, you know, parents, grandparents, who, whoever, to really help them succeed. So I think that's ultimately what I tell people to, um, if they ask why we do it or how we do it or continue to do it. Um, and I just tell them we make the choice to get hurt because the kids can't make that choice. Um, we decided to do it. We, we know going into it, like Roman said, that our hearts are going to get broken. Um, our walls are going to be <laughs> scuffed up and toys are going to be broken and, and all of that stuff. But we make that choice for ourselves and the kids don't. Um, this baby didn't make the choice to be born in, into what he was born into. None of the kids do. Um, they don't make the choice to be abused or neglected or starved or anything else. Um, so I think we, we as a couple and as adults make that choice to sacrifice how we feel um, because the kids, they can't do anything about it. You're absolutely right there. You know, they don't, they don't get a choice. And that's really important for people to hear because a lot of people don't even think about it. You know, a lot of people don't think before they speak. You know, you get all the silly questions. Um, but I have a question for you, Lindsay. You said that if Roman told the story... Um, that he would say it was 100% all you going into foster care. How would you convince him? I don't know. I think I've just gotten really good at wearing Roman down over the past couple of years, to be honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that we we also went into it not knowing anything. Um, just like our families didn't know anything about foster care or the process, we're two and a half years into it and we're still learning about it. Um, you know, so we just kept, you know, how are we going to care for the kids when we work? Um, you know, we're, we're, we both have jobs and what are we going to do if the kids have to be watched during the day and this and that. So, um, for every objection that he had, I tried to come up with several different, um, answers to put that to bed. Um, and I think ultimately I just wore him down. Well, Roman, now you know what happened. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that that's usually the case. And I know that the result. So sometimes I just end up caving in sooner. So <laughs> we, we learn eventually some someday, maybe that, that we're better off to cave sooner than later. Uh, you have to pick your battles. <laughs> exactly. Well, let me ask you this. I know you guys said you've had 21 kids in the last, what, two, two and a half years. That's pretty incredible. I mean, we've had like 20 kids over the last decade and admittedly we took a few years off you know after we lost our daughter we we needed some space to to grieve and heal and and that sort of thing but that's still a lot of kids do you have any cases that really stick out and to you that were really impactful something that, that maybe you learned something from about yourself definitely um our first case and i don't know if it was a mixture of it was it was the first time that we were um, parents or if it was just because they were the most perfect children on the face of the earth, um, which they are, but I think it taught us a lot. And, you know, Roman and I look back on it a lot because we're still involved with those children to a degree. Um, 
we keep in contact with their mom and from time to time we do get to see them. But I think watching ourselves transform through the process where we went into it um, and without even knowing her, we hated her Um, because how could this woman, you know, with such perfect children, allow them to be put in this situation. What, what's wrong with her? Why could, you know, she ever let this happen to them? And then we met her and formed a relationship with her and, and we liked her and definitely, you know, had sympathy for her and everything she'd been through. And then the kids get reunified and then, you know, you hate her again because now she took our children away from us. Um, and now we look back at it. They've been reunified for a little over a year now. And, you know, we were just talking about it the other day and, um, we actually recently just had a a child who was with us that we had to have moved to another home, which is very violent and aggressive towards the other children. And the home that he went to is, is a great one. Um, They're very well to do. So he wants for nothing, but they, you know, have an older child or the perfect home for him. Um, And we kind of joke and, and say that, wow, you know, he probably thinks that here it was in the dumps, you know, he had to share a room and, and all this stuff and he didn't have a Nintendo switch and he has everything. And, um, it kind of put into perspective for us what that biological mother of our first set of children was feeling when we took the kids to Disney and on airplane rides. And when, you know, they came down Christmas morning and there were literally 200 presents in our living room and we didn't do any of that to shame her in any sort of a w- way. We just did that because we loved them. Um, but we see now how that might've made her feel. So I think just watching our um, transformation over the past couple of years, and I think more than anything, we've developed patience for most of the parents. <laughs> that's Not all, but. That, that's powerful understanding that that bio parent relationship that's something that if i was to be perfectly honest we we never you know came into it with with that right mentality and we still struggle with making sure that that our focus is is understanding that because these kids come from a place and even if they do have parents who are bad people i'm and if you've been in this game long enough it's it, you're going to find that you're going to find some stuff, you know, whether it's mental health, addiction, you know, substance abuse, whatever. You're going to find some place where it's, you'll find bad people. But there are good people out there who just found themselves in a bad place, made a bad decision, and then they've turned and grown up. And to see that and, and be able to realize that really allows you to build that strong connection. And unfortunately, we haven't been able to keep contact with any of the kids that, that have been in our home. Because primarily most of the kids that we've had were really young. And if your three-year-old was in foster care for a year and they don't remember it when they're 11, would you ever tell that story to them, right? So why would they want to keep that keep that relationship open? I can understand that. What made you guys realize how important that was in the beginning? I mean, was it, was it just seeing how they've come over the last year? Or was, was a, there a point along that placement where you understood, hey there's more to this than I originally saw. I think probably because we were licensed um, on a Wednesday, we got a call for the kids on a Thursday and they were dropped off Friday. (laughs) So we were just out of training and they drill into you in training um, about bridging the gap and having that relationship with a biological family. So 
at that point, we just didn't know any, any different, you know, we're, we're sitting there looking through our books and be like, okay, on this day, I should send pictures, you know, I mean, we literally did everything by the book because we didn't know any better. We're first time parents, first time foster parents, but then along with what's in black and white, um, your feelings go into it. Um, so we've learned me more so has learned, um, you know, not to take everything personally, even like today we got a phone call regarding one of the children who the biological parents said that his, his clothes are too small or they're not nice looking enough and stuff. And you know, where that used to really send me over the edge and upset me. Now we kind of say, yeah, okay, whatever. I get it. Um, and it doesn't bother us anymore, but in the beginning it, it really did. Um, but I think it's a, like you said, some of the parents just bad luck, I guess, that they're in this situation. Um, so for, we can kind of tell early on, depending on what the situation is. So for some of them, we do sympathize for the other ones we don't. Um, but we, we try and have a relationship with all of the parents, but if we don't, it's usually on their accord. Um, we had the police show up here on Easter this year because one of the parents called the hotline in on us. So, you know, that's a parent that we typically wouldn't continue to form a relationship with. So they kind of set the tone for how much we're willing to put in. Welcome to the club of being hotlined. Oh, it's, it's fun. <laughs> yeah. If you haven't had the hotline called on you at some point, you probably just have not been doing it long enough. It's going to happen. And uh, that's, that's just part of this game, I think. But, you know, you guys realizing that so early on is so very valuable for the kids that you're going to have in your home. Um, did you guys have any real expectations when you came into foster care that, I mean, other than obviously the, the foster to adopt is one expectation. Um, but, but did you have any other real expectations about what that was going to look like? I think training kind of set that, I guess. Um, and in training, it's a little bit sugarcoated. So it's like, you know, everybody's here for you. Everybody's a resource. And it's like one of those things kind of like, all right, you went from like, let's say high school into the real world or graduating college into the real world. Nobody's going to like hold your hand and give you a solution. So oftentimes you have, you know, caseworkers that aren't the best or just have a big caseload. You have, you know, uh, nurses and, and other people involved in the case, law guardians don't have that much information or the wrong information or you're constantly trying to advocate. So I think it's like very situational where we went through each experience and then figure out how to uh, deal with it as best as possible. Because there's, you know, I think we've been through in, in two and a half years with every case, there's been, there's obviously, like you mentioned, um, you know, mental illness and mental illness, there's no clarity there. So it's like speaking on a Zoom call because of COVID. So my wife actually had to supervise 22 hours of Zoom calls during the peak of COVID with, um, visits moving solely to Zoom because we had four kids from three different families. So it was basically three, three cases. So everything was multiplied by three. And then you had parents like, why is he calling me mom in the background? Well, all the other kids are little and they say mom. So obviously the fourth one will say mom because three other children are saying mom. And it's like, we're not forcing them to say mom. We're, and that child actually had uh, frontal lobe syndrome was on a spectrum. And it was like, it's hard enough to get him to, to slide his shoes on. If, if you want us to work with mom, that's going to regress as soon as they hear somebody else say mom. So they're just like one of those things where like situationally training is one thing it's like, and then being in the real world and like in the driver's seat is another. And then you have to 
present or create real world or real time solutions with whatever you're dealing. I mean, together, I mean, if she gets an email call, we figure out how to handle it or what's going on. Or, you know, sometimes you have to drop what you're doing to pick up a child or there's an emergency. So the, 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 the ever-changing uh, atmosphere in terms of what we're dealing with, the cases, the bio parents, and then like anything else that's unforeseen, I think in training, they, they painted it a little bit more of stable and everybody's there for you and everybody's this big tribe, you know, holding hands with certain times, certain variables in the case, they're going for different goals. You know what I mean? So it's like not not everybody's necessarily your friend, not like they're your enemy, but you have to be your own advocate, really. Amen. <laughs> that That's, you said a mouthful there, that's for sure. Um, now, have you guys dealt with a whole lot of trauma in your experience? Did, or have you guys, you know, because we've had several different types of placement, I guess you would call it, you know, some that were just um, kid needed a place to stay until until a family placement came open. We had one little guy stay with us for a year. His great aunt ended up being his permanent placement, but she's a, a little bit older, had a fixed income, and we had some tornadoes come through St. Louis a few years ago, tore the roof off of her house, and a fly-by-night company come through and taken her insurance money and left it that way. And so we had Carl, not his real name, don't worry, but that was his name in our house. We had Carl with us for his first year of life. He actually celebrated his first birthday just after she got everything taken care of, and he he went to stay with her. There, there was no real trauma, trauma there. I mean, there's always the trauma of losing your first family, but as an infant, it wasn't much, right? You, you're not dealing with a whole lot at that age, all the way up to some pretty severe cases. And that's been something that took us a lot of time and energy to, to learn about trauma and how it affects people and, and how it affects their behavior and how that ultimately affects our behavior and our understanding affects a relationship and all that have you guys dealt with a lot of tra heavy trauma cases or anything like that? Really only one. Um, and it was actually around this time last year, we got the phone call. Um, and up until recently I worked in retail. Um, so almost always nights and weekends. Um, but I got the phone call for a two, two year old, maybe 18, 18 month, two year old boy. Um, by the time he finally came to us and you know how it is. Most of the time we don't know really even if they're male or female, but um, didn't know much about him, but just knew that it, it was not a great situation. Um, so I was at work and oftentimes I agree to these placements and then tell Roman afterwards, oh, by the way, a child's on the way. Um, so he had sent me a picture um, of this little boy and my heart broke. Um, I mean, just, just like thinking about the picture, it, it gets me emotional, but um, two black eyes, broken nose. Um, he had suffered a skull fracture the year before. Um, and that was tough. I luckily knock on wood, all of our other children have come to us either drug exposed or, you know, medical neglect or something. And it's sad when you say like, luckily, um, but there wasn't any real, um, abuse there other than this, this child, baby B we call him. Um, and, and I, I think I was instantly very much attached to him because of all of that trauma. Um, and sadly, he was only with us for a month. Um, DCPNP found family and they gave us a 30 minute notice two days before Christmas that they were moving him. Oh, man. Uh, 
So again, working in retail two days before Christmas, I had uh, in, a, in a management role, I had lines wrapped around my store, um, grabbed my stuff, fought traffic home and put as much stuff into a bag as I could. And Roman and I were um, in tears carrying Christmas presents and things out to the van and that was it. That's tough. Those are hard. I know one of the more severe trauma cases we had, um, he was diagnosed RAD, which for the listeners, if you don't know much about RAD, well, if you've heard the episodes leading up to this one, one that should come out um, actually really soon, it'll be right before this one is a, uh, is a story about, um, about a little girl who had a a really severe case of, of RAD, but this guy's, his case was not terribly severe. I think we caught him at the last moment. He learned to build some attachment, you know, and, and reactive attachment disorder can go a lot of ways, but he and my wife formed a ridiculous bond and they were with us for about a year and a half. And I mean, this little dude was stuck to her or if we were in public, he was stuck to me, but he chose her first and it was a really close connection. And we had to let him go and take him to his to his, uh, his biological father's place, which was, was a safe place. It was a good place. He, he got his life together and did all the right things, but still the day we dropped him off was mother's day. That was a rough mother's day. Yeah. It's one of those things that people just don't understand. Um, and you know, when we say we've, we've lost our child, um, sometimes we feel guilty because we don't ever want to compare it to someone's loss of, of, of a physical life, but the child has left our home and they're our first placement. Like Roman said, they were with us for a year and we've never experienced as much pain. I mean, five miscarriages and I can genuinely say that losing those boys was a greater pain for us. Um, for me anyway. And you can't describe it. And you know, the only thing that I kind of tell people is that when, you know, a human, when they, when they die, when they pass on, you know, that they're in a better place, but when your foster child leaves, it, it it's sickening. It's like a hole in your, your chest, you know, because we go to sleep every night wondering, like Roman said, are they being fed? You know, it's 40 degrees today. Do their jackets fit them? Do, you know, are they prepared if another wave of COVID hits? And it's, it's sickening to think that your baby is out there somewhere and you can't do anything to make sure they're okay. So it, I don't think we're over yet. Um, our first kids leaving, but it's a little easier. Yeah. I understand that feeling really, really well. I would say that for us, yes, it's very hard. Um, but, but it's worth it, you know, and that's the part that's hard for a lot of people to understand. It's, it's worth it. I look at it this way, you know, one of the things that that I I have come to terms with in my life is that a lot of what I'm looking for is leaving a legacy behind me. Dale Carnegie's great-grandkids know about Dale Carnegie, right? You know, the Roosevelt's know about their their ancestors. And maybe I won't leave a legacy or quite like, (laughs) or a bank account like the Carnegie's or the Roosevelt's. But I hope to leave something for my great, great, great grandkids to hear about because I'd love to change the world a hundred years from now by my actions today. And that that's what, what we're kind of shooting for here in, in our on our mission. But I know that one of the things that you guys have, have mentioned it a couple times, and it's really important, I think, for us to, to talk about it, 
is that part of what makes that difficult is that the foster care system is a broken system in a lot of ways. Mostly because you have broken people who are politicians who are funding and setting up departments to do something that they really don't know what they're doing. And then the whole lot of bureaucracy happens and we're kind of the, we're, we're kind of like the grunts down here on the ground trying to, trying to run interference between good and evil. And where have you guys seen problems dealing with the foster care system with your kids? Every step of the way. <laughs> um, I'll let Roman answer that, but I will say um, without giving too much detail because I can't right now, um, me and a small group of other foster moms are working currently um, with le legislature to get some bills and things passed, um, like a foster care and foster parent bill of rights um, to help us and help the kids. So I can't give any details about that, but it's been in the works for maybe five or six months. Um, and it will continue to be for quite some time before it's, you know, yay or nay, but we're working on it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, because like you said, there's a lot of bureaucracy. So New Jersey as a state is overseen by the federal government based on the things that happen and were, you know, in the limelight and in the news in terms of like gross, you know, mismanagement. And, you know, there's cases where like the kids were kept in cages and malnourished because like the caseworkers caseloads were so crazy that they couldn't even, you know, get around to seeing them. So there's a lot. I mean, there's human error, there's personalities involved. So let's say caseworkers. There's great caseworkers that will do anything for the children. And then there's caseworkers because it is a role that there's high burnout, high, you know, high rate of recidivism in terms of just turnover and turnover or switching departments in that sense. And, um, you know, switching and just like, here's the caseload, let me give it to somebody else. Here's a caseload, let me give it to somebody else. And, you know, start a new, maybe in the adoption unit or a different unit. So there's an internal turnover like that as well. And just people leaving the role itself. I mean, we've had caseworkers like straight up say, you know, it doesn't really matter what you say or who you say it to, you're never going to get me fired. So with that kind of mindset, you're not necessarily doing the best for the case or the child. And I mean, it's just one of those things where just like advocating, like it shouldn't take like, you know, 20 emails and like 50 calls just to get, you know, a evaluation scheduled. So it was one of those things, if we weren't there, like you said, we're like the, the, uh, I don't know, at the gates, we're like the last line of defense and like for the flood to come and, you know, everything to be over because when, when we see the child in our home, we get to spend the most time with them. So we can quickly evaluate them, although we're not medical or, you know, uh, psychological professional or therapists, we see behavior, we see tendencies, we connect the dots a lot faster and we bring it up because, you know, we want to advocate and get the kids help. And oftentimes, you know, we get, you know, that's just a developmental age. It's just, you know, they're just going to go, you know, get through it or, you know, uh, we have to wait because this, and, and oftentimes it's just a simple connect the dots and basically pick up a phone and, and get it done. Because oftentimes it, there's been situations where it's like people drop the ball and, and they don't take accountability. My whole thing is if I do something wrong, although my wife may attest to that in terms of some of the stuff related to at, at home <laughs> in terms of taking accountability, but like, let's say work or any other things, 
Like I, I will stand up and say, this is my fault. How do we fix it? I learned from this experience. Okay, my bad. And oftentimes we've had a lot of denial and backtracking to as much of like not providing documents and like medical records because it would attest to the fact that they were lying. So just like all this stuff. And I think the, the big thing here is accountability. So if somebody does something wrong, there's no accountability. There's no change. Like, okay, you did something wrong, but let's find a solution and a process to solve it for other cases, as well as this case in the future and not keep kind of like fumbling the ball over and over again and not learning from, you know, this experience. You don't have to repeat it, but it seems like we've seen in the 21 cases, things repeat over and over again and like the lesson isn't learned so it's like i don't know if it needs to be kind of like a scared straight situation where somebody actually you know is punished for something but you know there's a lot of leniency in my opinion and you know with certain things yeah i've heard a lot of stories horror stories about certain caseworkers who really should not be in charge of taking care of other humans but we've been really fortunate We've been really fortunate, and um, I don't just say this because I know there's a couple of caseworkers in our area who listen, and, you know, this isn't buttering anybody's bread here. It's it's just true. We've been really fortunate to have some amazing caseworkers who really cared about the kids, but I know that's not always the case. That's not always, Some people do it as a job, and some people do it as a passion, and unfortunately, one of the things that I think our state here in Missouri really needs to look at is the fact that our state workers do not get paid anywhere near what is worth for their the job they're doing. They're taking care of kids. They're doing hard jobs. They're wildly overbooked. They're wildly underfunded. And I want to say the last time I looked into it, the annual pay was somewhere around like $34,000, $35,000. And I thought, oh my goodness, like the average mean income in the U.S. I think is like 40000 and you're going to take the people who are who are doing this, who are taking care of our next generation kids, who are trying to keep as many kids as we can in safe, healthy, happy places and out of prison as they get older, and we're going to pay them less than than the the average income for the for the country. That's that's insane. One of the things that that somebody told me recently was if if you want to just go ahead and show me your calendar and and your checkbook stubs, I'll uh, I'll tell you what your priorities are in life and. And I think that goes for the government as well. When you look at what they're doing, it's easy to see where their priorities lie. And it's not with helping kids. When you start from that place, you have maybe a handful of workers who are really bad and a handful who are amazing. And most of them probably fall somewhere in the middle. And, and that's what we're working with. And we're not always lucky enough to get the awesome ones. But like I said, we have been really fortunate in our area. But for all the all the people out here who have not been that fortunate, if you guys had a magic wand to wave and you could change one thing about the foster care system, what do you think would be the most impactful thing that you could change? For me, I guess, I mean, Lindsay can, can say hers, but I think communication because there's so many moving parts and, and transparency. If everybody's like aligned on the same page, it basically eliminates a lot of time and a lot of back and forth and a lot of finger pointing. So, I mean, for me personally, like in business and marketing, I establish a baseline where we are now, where we need to get and, you know, what needs to be done. It's because there's so many, there's uh, law guardians, there's nurses, there's caseworkers, there's, uh, you know, resource workers and other people. So sometimes you have 10, 11, even more people, therapists. And, and I feel like a lot of the time it's like, 
oftentimes like a month later, we would get a call or an email uh, mainly going to Lindsay saying, hey, this appointment is scheduled when you're dropping them off. And we're like, wait, they, they've been reunified for like a, a month and a half already. So it's just like really aligning and getting information correct. That I mean, it's tough because there's so many agencies involved, but I think if there's a better job of communication. It would alleviate a lot of the misinformation and a lot of the pain points that we've dealt with uh, a few of the cases. I think for me, probably consistency and structure um, I know that no two children or no two cases are alike, but they just vary too much case to case. Um, and especially for new, new time um, foster parents, it's hard to know sometimes what you're supposed to do and not do and say and not say, um, or how you're supposed to help or advocate for the children. Um, one of the little boys that's in our home right now, he's been here with us for eight months but he's been in the system for 18 months, uh, 19 months now. So for more than half his life, he's been in the system and his mother is still getting um, three month extensions here and there and here and there. And it's one of those things, again, coming out of pride training, you know what that time limit is. Um, and while we do believe that families should be together and the biological parents should have an opportunity to get their children back, um, what about this little boy? What about this little boy who is in my home, who is three years old, who for the half of his life, he's had uncertainty. Um, and it's because there is no structure and case by case, you know, depending on who the caseworker is and who the casework supervisor is, it could go on forever or it could end tomorrow. Um, whatever that end looks like. That's some of the same things that, that we have seen a lot of people struggle with, especially that communication piece. It's um, it's not always easy when you have a worker who's got a caseload that's twice their legal limit to to be able to communicate with them for me. And then on top of that, you know, they have every child has, like you said, the therapist, the doctors or this or that and multiply that by how many cases. And it's really difficult to keep that communication open um, for 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 foster families and kids, I found, I found the, the best method to deal with that in my own experience has been, I just pull out the, the keys to my little personal bulldozer and just, just start pushing my way into somebody's email inbox or on their phone and call and text and find supervisors. And, and unfortunately, sometimes that's something we've had to do on this last particular case that we had a little girl. She just, she just went to a, a family placement <clears throat> to stay there. It was actually a really good place, but since it was an ICPC case, they live 10 miles too far to the east, so it had to cross state lines, and that made it take six months for them to get the paperwork done. And where I know ICPC is a huge nightmare for them to do, and it's a lot of, and it takes a lot. But the state that she was going to was not really moving too much. And I ended up on the phone with the state capitol, like kind of making some noise and, and rattling a few cages, and and it wasn't until I, I got around to doing that that I noticed that things changed. And that's been the one of the biggest changes, I think, of, for our situation is to be willing to to be that foster parent who gets kind of a little bit a little bit of the squeaky wheel syndrome, maybe. Uh, have you guys had that had that problem in, in your area or or do you guys have a, a pretty decent group of people taking care of that stuff? Recently had that problem. Um, we had so right before quarantine had started um, for us, we, we took that three-year-old boy who's still with us. Um, we had two children that were just about to get reunified. He, we 
took him as a placement. He was our third. The other two children um, got reunified. And then we took a five-year-old boy who was supposed to be respite for 10 days, who he arrived here. And then um, the previous family said that they no longer wanted him um, because he was special needs and he was sweet boy, but special needs, um, not his fault, but very difficult to care for. Easy to love, but difficult to care for. Um, and then we got a phone call for two more boys, three and six. And I was very honest with the caseworker and said, listen, I have a special needs child. We've never had a special needs child before. I'm in school to become a special education teacher, but we've never had one in our house before. I cannot take any children who are medically or behaviorally um, compromised. Just can't do it. I said, no, 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 no. These kids are great. They just need a schedule. I said, perfect. We're good with schedules. Um, and the six-year-old had ADHD, ODD, um, every acronym under the sun. He was the one who was, you know, punching holes in walls, ripping chunks of hair out of his brother's head. And um, this fell right during quarantine. So I really pushed for therapeutic services and um, mental health and every evaluation under the sun. And the caseworker didn't do anything. Um, we're supposed to get medical passports of the children's medical records. And I still don't have one for the younger brother, um, but I know who, who is still with us. Um, but we never got it for the child because DCP and P had actually been involved with this family for over two years. And they knew of all of these diagnoses um, and they hit it so that we would take the placement. Um, but on one of our big team meeting calls, the casework supervisor um, on Zoom with about a dozen other people personally threw me under the bus um, when we had finally made the call after three months to have him removed from our home that if we provided more structure to him, um, he, he wouldn't be acting out like this. His brother wouldn't be getting abused in our home. And I lost it um, and proceeded to write a six page email outlining every single text message that I had sent to the caseworker with every incident with him pushing his younger brother through our sliding glass door, um, ripping hair out of his head, trying to drown him in the pool. And I had sent the email to about 10 people. Um, and within, I think, 72 hours, about 65 people had seen it. And then my phone was going nonstop. Um, then all of a sudden, all of these services that I was told couldn't be offered were then offered. Um, and unfortunately, it was just a little too late. It was still the best decision to have the child placed in a different home. But um, I told Roman, I said, my email is, is nice. It's, it's worded strong, um, <laughs> but this could be the end of us. They could choose to say we're difficult to work with and this is it. And, you know, pull all the kids from our home and that could be it. But I have to do what I feel is right for this little boy and for the other three kids in our house. Um, and here we are, we still have kids in our house um, and it, it got a little ugly, but yeah, we had to be... Um, very squeaky for, for some time. Squeaky is not always bad. Roman, does that mean you know how to patch holes in the wall now? Uh, somewhat, but I think uh, Lindsay w would say she's more handy with uh, fixing things. She just really lets me only paint for the most part. Any, anything else structural, she would like to take care of. But yeah, I agree with her. And it's one of those things where I've said to caseworkers, I don't have anything against them, but if I'm like, uh, forward, or obviously I'm not coming at you disrespectfully in terms of making a request, but if I call and ask you maybe 10 times, 10 times is a little much. And I've said, so if you were in the private sector working with me, I would straight up fire you on the spot for the lack of 
moving and the lack of communication and like having a face-to-face conversation and you know well, you know why are you you know i'm feeling uh sad about this i'm like this isn't about your feelings like i hurt your feelings this is not about your feeling this is about the neglect and not attending to children in terms of what they actually need and things going on and things that sometimes you actually keep from us and don't get me wrong like we talked about there's great case workers that we had and we had the pleasure to work with we want to work with again and get them over and over again because they're awesome but situations like okay if, if you deliberately keep information from us and like the go-to is like well we can't disclose that information but you know we look at the handbook there's a handbook we ask other case workers we ask lawyers and guardians and say that's information that anyone is privy to it's not something that's sealed and they would technically keep that information that would, you know, have basis in terms of how we can help the kids and how the case would go. So it's just one of those things where, like you said, you have to knock on doors and you have to sometimes not necessarily physically get in people's faces, but call people out in a, in a nice way to actually get the ball rolling. We've had to actually tell them um, because we live about seven minutes away from the office that these surprise visits work both ways. Just as quickly as you can knock on our front door, we can show up at the office. So, you know, after about the fourth or fifth phone call or email that goes unanswered, we drive down there and we show up um, and we say, hey, I need an answer. <laughs> and they don't like that. So they, they start to respond quicker these days. Well, like I said, sometimes you just need to get the keys to the bulldozer out and just and plow through a problem. Uh, that's unfortunately one of the things I learned a long, long time ago. And uh, fortunately, I haven't had to do it too much. We had a case where we had a um, we had a little guy who was being <clears throat> repeatedly put through some through some visitation with a a mother who was incredibly abusive. And the whole thing that was holding up the case was the fact that the detective in the case had not gone and followed up on on what needed to be done. And so there may have been a phone call to his boss. Um, we're, we're in a small town. I know people who know people and it's not difficult to get a hold of the sheriff himself or, or the, the local police chief and say, Hey, um, one of you guys isn't getting something done and here's why I care. You know, this is nothing to do with ego. This isn't me, but there's a kid who's being hurt on a regular weekly basis because of the inaction here. And his, his excuse was, well, I, these people just won't call me back. And I'm like, you're a detective. Right now, if I show up at their door knocking on it, that's considered inappropriate. But when you show up with a piece of shiny metal in your hand, that's appropriate. That's your job. And that's what it took. And, and on that particular case, you know, the, the mom was investigated. There was a lot of stuff that went on. She had a lot of severe stuff in her life and you know, her, her rights were finally terminated and the kids ended up where they should have been hated to see him leave, but they went back to their biological father and everything was was great and we have opportunity to see pictures of them on Facebook and whatnot sometimes and see that smile and you can see that they're doing great. They're doing wonderful and it's amazing to see, but none of that would be happening if mom hadn't been terminated on. If they had gone back to her, it would have been a terrible situation for them. So that that's just, sometimes you, you hate to do it, you hate to be that person, but sometimes you need to be for the sake of the kid. But no, what what you guys are doing out there is is great for kids, you know. And it sounds like you have had a lot of opportunity to to pull a lot of kids into your home and provide them with some safety and structure that they otherwise would not have had. Which, at the end of the day, is what you know what we're really here for. You know, we're you know you said it, Roman. We're not we're not professional medical staff. We're not psychological therapists. We're not 
psychiatrist. We're not doing any of that work. Our job is just to provide a safe, healthy place where kids can maybe begin to heal. And that's what it sounds like you guys have done for more than 20 kids. And that's that's just an amazing thing for for parents who who were not biological parents before they stepped into this into this journey. That part alone just blows my mind because we had kids at a young age. I'm 42 and my old no, um hang on. Nope. I'm 43. I just did that whole birthday thing a little while back and my uh my oldest son is 22. And so we we started out pretty young. And we didn't know what we were doing. I don't think we would have had anywhere near the bandwidth in our life to figure out how to help kids with trauma, how to help kids who come from hard places. And I just really wonder, you know, where did you guys find that strength? I don't know. It's just, <laughs> you get thrown into it and um, you just do it, I guess. I mean, uh, me personally, I mean, there's uh, situations of domestic abuse in terms of uh, my father in the past when I was younger, things that I've displayed. So for me personally, like throughout the years and from that point, seeing that, I kind of vowed to myself that, you know, if I'm ever going to be a father, regardless of the situation, I'll try to show a better depiction and, you know, not have that in my life because, I mean, I think it, it has impacted me in one way or another. And I mean, it's one of those things like uh, Lindsay and I have been through so many things together that this, I don't think I could be doing this if I was doing it by myself, honestly, not even from like the logistics standpoint of like, you know, the time, just like having somebody with me to understand what I'm going through, I think is important and relate to me. I mean, we do have obviously like a support system as well and have different kind of foster groups you know Lindsay has a bunch of foster moms that she regularly meets with and we found another group prior to that from a, a church someone I knew from the past that were uh, foster and adoptive parents that met like once a month once every you know two months because if you're not in a situation I mean I'm sure you run across people that haven't fostered or adopted or what have you and you know it's so great what you're doing but but they don't even understand like the the, the 90 95% of what actually goes into it or don't understand the frustration so when you meet someone that has fostered you know for a month a year 10 years what have you you can just jump into it and you can sympathize with them i mean it's, it's like with anything that you go through i mean founding a company going through something else moving overseas if you meet someone that went through the same experience like you connect automatically and understand where each other are coming from just kind of you find yourself gravitating towards people who've been through similar situations and it, it creates quite a community of people with with shared experiences so that that's a really powerful thing um well <clears throat> it's been great having you guys on here today i don't want to take up your whole day and i wish i could have amanda tell you guys goodbye as well but her phone went off a few minutes ago and I think football practice ended early today and there was a kid going, come pick me up, mom. And it's considered bad form to leave your kid sit and wait too long. Well, thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening to Roman and Lindsay's story. I hope you've gained some knowledge and wisdom that you can bring back into your life and your family. Be sure to come back next week. We put up new shows every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can connect with other like-minded people at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj and join our foster care group. 
Don't forget, we have a Patreon where you can support our mission at patreon.com slash foster care nation. And as always, thank you for 